Good evening. Welcome to the Sydney Ideas Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I'm Tracy Beck, Director of Alumni and Community Engagement. I'm very pleased to welcome tonight alumna Kate Jennings. Kate is known to many as a towering figure of the street wars of Australia's feminist movement and for her infamous front lawn speech delivered to an anti-war rally at Sydney University in 1970 when she was an undergraduate and just 21 years of age. She's now based in New York, so we're delighted to have her back tonight for an event that she suggested and in conversation with her brother Dare Jennings about their creative work and shared influences. The format for tonight will be a 45-minute conversation followed by a 30-minute question-answer session. For questions, we have two mics in the aisles there. As the talk is being recorded for a podcast on the university's website and is also being filmed for ABC TV Big Ideas tonight, it is important that you use the microphone for your questions, please. Kate will be signing her books at the Glee Book Stall in the foyer after the event. I'd now like to pass the proceedings over to James Valentine, ABC radio presenter, a writer himself and musician, who will be leading the conversation tonight about what makes a creative entrepreneur. Thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you, Tracy, and uh, welcome to the uh, Verbuggen Hall here tonight. I, I feel as though we should be doing a concerto for entrepreneurs, perhaps a small sonata that uh, we could whip up all together as a collection. It's a collective. It'll be a lovely thing to uh, do here tonight. But uh, lovely to see you all here uh, for this uh, conversation tonight. I ended up part of it as I was, uh, I've been friends with Dare for a long time and he said, look, you better come and uh, have uh, dinner with Dare and Kate. And they, they squabbled so much during the night that the suggestion was, why don't you come and sit between us? Uh, just to diffuse any sort of sibling tension that might emerge during the evening. So, you know, I said, yes, okay, no, no worries, that'd be terrific. Uh, the conversation's going to be about what it is to be an entrepreneur. In, in Kate's case, perhaps, what it is, does the artist, does the writer have to be an entrepreneur? Could she think of herself as entrepreneurial in the way in which she's, she's lived her writer's life? To, she's put together books of poetry, she's written poetry, she's sold journalism, she's sold novels, she's had them published, she's uh, moved herself to New York, she's, a, she's created a business as a Wall Street speechwriter. Is that how Kate sees herself and sees her, her career? Dare is perhaps more obviously a creative entrepreneur in that he's established businesses, he's uh, sold actual product, he's come up with ideas, and it's a more concrete kind of sense of, of entrepreneurship over there. Should artists be more entrepreneurial? Do, do the business people have to be more creative? These are the sort of things I'm sure we'll explore during, uh, during the evening. So we might start fairly simply, I think, just with, you know, what, you're the kind of real entrepreneur here. I, I first met you with a bag of T-shirts, pouring them out backstage, going, go on, put them on, get out there, <laughs> flog back, these things for me. So, back in the music funny, days. Back in the music days. So it's, uh, it's, you know, funny to... Uh, be here all these years later and uh, talking about what? What do you think is a, is a creative entrepreneur? What, what's, what's meant by that? Well, I, I can. I guess I can only put it in the context that I know, which is the things that I've done, and, and it's it is sort of curious to try to define what it is because in in my case, I don't have much choice. I I just do what I do, and it that's the way it turns out. And when I was in a teenager, my parents despaired completely and thought that I was, they'd raised a complete no-hoper who had 
little or no chance to do anything. I remember my mother suggesting perhaps I should learn to, to uh, do a two-stroke motor course because I could always find work <laughs> fixing two-stroke motors around the place. Little did she know that they were going to be outlawed. But, um, um, and it was only after wandering around for my 20s, um, wasting my time really, um, that I started to get some sort of need to do things and, and, and found that there were things that I could do. And they basically um, came back to my various enthusiasms that I'd developed in my 20s. And it's kind of funny now hearing people talk about their kids having a gap year. I go, man, you should at least have a gap 10 years to go out there and <laughs> find out what it is that you might be excited about or yeah. be enthusiastic yeah. about. The and clippership. Yeah, well, yeah the, that's my, my theory about the clipper ship. Is you should put them on a clipper ship and get them to go around, go and find something and waste get a bit of time. Get out the world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, it's the same for riders. They should join the merchant navvy. Absolutely. You know, yeah, and then, yeah, then you ride. You've got so much for the rest of your life. Yeah. Kate, do you see a difference with your experience in writing about money, finance, banks? Do you see a difference in Dare's notion of entrepreneurship to what we might think of as the financial entrepreneurship, the, the property developers, the commodity trading, that sort of thing? I, I don't see those people as being entrepreneurs at all. They're just capitalists. They're Wall Street warlords. Um, I think what DARE does is true entrepreneurship, um, which is taking an idea and making something of it that somebody else hasn't done. Whereas the guys that I've seen on Wall Street, they're just doing what Wall Street guys have always done, make money, lots of it. Um, do I see myself as an entrepreneur? Not particularly. Um, I, I do say occasionally that you know, a writer is an entrepreneur because we wake up every day, white page, we have to make ourselves do it. Um, then we have to deal with publishers and things like that. Um, but we're not in the true sense of an entrepreneur. However, <coughs> things are changing and I think we're actually going to have to turn ourselves into entrepreneurs. Um, if I can backtrack this a little bit. Um, I went to a National Book Award uh, some years ago because Arthur Miller was still alive and he was given the um, uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. And he stood up and he read from a script and he read badly, but it was really, really interesting. <coughs> and that year, Andrew Solomon got his, the award for the Noonday Demon, I think Day Beggars maybe. And the two of them just leapt onto the stage and performed. And it was really like, I said, what's, what's happened? I mean, they were so good at it. And, of course, now we all know writers have to be performers. If you go to writers' festivals, you'll see it's a necessary part of the job description. So fast forward to, to now, um, to the internet. Um, everything is changing. You know, it's, it's a sort of big tectonic change. Um, and I don't know if any of you have been following um, what's been happening in New York, where Andrew Wiley has actually taken all his writers off the internet and gone to Amazon and said, I will publish my own writers. And Andrew Wiley came to New York, New York about 20 years ago and he did this terrible thing, he's called the jackal. He pinched all these writers from other, you know, it's a very gentlemanly business and he threw money at writers and he got more to come over to him. He also has this fabulous backlist, it's sort of Malin, Nabokov, etc., etc. But so he is now going to be a agent, publisher. Now you can see the problem there with one distributor, Amazon. Um, which leaves writers where? And that's the big question. Mm -hmm. But then the other part of it too is, is um, a lot of my friends now say, well look, we can, you know, there's no barriers to entry on the internet. You can do a magazine, you can do a blog, you can do whatever you like. 
My problem with that is just a really basic one. I actually think you need an editor. Uh, I think musicians need producers. And the, the, uh, the um, example that my brother and I were talking about was Aretha Franklin. Two great records, Jerry Wexler. After that, downhill all the way. <laughs> You know, anyway, yeah. rest my case. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot in there on entrepreneurship in, yeah. in art and where publishing's going and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It, you'd have a sense, though, that the artist should be part of the business, that the artist should be part of it. There's nothing wrong with, mm-hmm. with art and, and business and entrepreneurship going hand in hand. Isn't that Mambo and no. Deus and the, the creative yeah. of it all the way through? For me, it's that, the interesting thing of how do you mix all those things together. And you find, um, and especially with Mambo and even Phantom Records was the other one where you, you, there, there's people who are very creative but left to their own devices can't really do a great deal. So for Mambo and Deus and Phantom, they were all places where they could come, they could get full credit for what they did, but their contribution created a, a, a larger notion, <laughs> a sum of the parts, mm-hmm. as it were. And, and um, it supported an artistic life for many of them too. It, it did, it? yeah. And, and know, a lot instead of instead of drudging through teaching or doing something, you know, being in the cafe, they had an, an excellent, good job. And, and Reg Mombasa was a classic case. He could do a few exhibitions, but he did work, and he liked the work, and yeah. he found it highly amusing. That people were highly <laughs> amused by it, and and it all sort of worked out well. But in the end, all of those things contributed to create uh, a culture and a definable culture, yeah. and an entity that people could relate to. And, but more importantly, the, the, the thing is, for me, I had to make it work financially, otherwise it was just going to collapse. The, you know, people wouldn't get paid and the whole thing would go down. And for some reason, and I, I still, you know, I'm still surprised, I, I still think I should be driving a tractor in Collie Amberley, but um, <laughs> that, that I was tenacious enough to make sure, how, how do you pay the bills? How do you, you might want to do this, but you'll do this to cr- get a bit of money to keep that part going. Mm. So for me, that was... Probably, and I, I, but I loved the creativity and I loved all that, but I, I didn't want to see it collapse, so mm. I had to kind of multitask. What, what's that spirit then, then, do you think? I mean, many people will have the idea for the cafe, for the product, for the, the clothing line. Mm. Uh, they may even attempt it, but will fail, but won't have the tenacity, won't have whatever it is. What's that that means that you, you get through? Well, again, it's hard to say because that's just... That was, is my personality type is mm. like that. It was because I didn't want it to collapse. I wanted, you know, you'd worked hard and you wanted to see it fly. And again, that's what it is. You, there's an idea. How do you make it fly? And I, at least I had the, the knowledge to know that it had to work financially. Otherwise, it wasn't going to fly anywhere. Mm. And, and of course, you know, you, you, I meet hundreds of people with great ideas. But you go, so have you, have you thought it right the way through? They wouldn't how, know how a business it plan if it bit them. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. Which well, is the hipster entrepreneur you've talked about? Yeah, we, but, but people like me, um, we, I, I think we're also called intuitive because we only deal with stuff that we know about. Yeah. We, never, we don't do market research to find out you know, what you can make money. You, you only do it. You know, from when we were friends, we hang out at the Civic Hotel and knew all the bands and loved the music. So that became part of the things that I did. Mm. Um, you know, there was always an artistic sort of side of it, so that became artists, and suddenly, you know, they all came together to make something, but that was, had to be the way mm. it worked. Well, I think there's a lot of really, you know, some ideas to tease out there for the, you know, the latter part of the conversation. I, I want to go back yeah. to perhaps your, your background. I mean, we've, the, the reason you're here, in a sense, is that you're siblings. Is there something in this, that under, in, your, in your childhood, in your parents, in where you grew up, that underscores 
both if it's entrepreneurship for you and creativity for you, whatever it might be, they seem, they seem very closely allied. There seems to be a lot of similarity. What, what's we, what's, we've what's talked, in the background? Well, we've talked about this a lot and sometimes we say... I mean, the, the fact is, um, in, in my book Trouble at the beginning, I, I, you know, when young writers come to me, um, I tell them, first of all, are they ready for the long haul? Are they ready for failure, basically? And then they start getting a bit edgy. Um, and then I say, you know, when you think you're finished, you've only just begun. Well, that's, then they leave. Yeah. <laughs> not, they really don't want to know about that. But, um, what, but my strongest character trait is probably that when I'm down, I'm down for about five minutes, and then I sort of say, well, I'm going to show them. You know, and and I, I've, I've talked to Dare about this. Where does that come from? Um, and you could say, you know, well, maybe it's from our farming background because you've got to worry about next year's crop, not last year's one. Um, we wondered, we were talking about this, you know, was it a sort of dynamic our mother set up that made us very competitive and that fuels us? Is it our North Shore relatives that we want to show them? Well, <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty there, oh, really, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we're, well, we really set. For, yeah, for yeah, me, but, it was, yeah. uh, you know, our parents had the, you know, the, they were, my father was a farmer, our mother was a bright girl from Hornsby and they married at the end of the war, war brides, and it was this classic scorpion-like death battle and from our father we got you know practical um how you know a farm is the classic entrepreneurial pursuit you've got four posts and you better find something to grow and sell to somebody at the end of it otherwise you we really did at Collie Amity we had four white posts right (laughs) but our mother was a you know a frustrated um cultured person who filled her heads with culture as well so there was a combination of those things I think Plus the delayed gratification of living in Collie where you think, God, let's just, I want to go anywhere but here. <laughs> it was on the Hay Plains, so it was like, you, you, it was, yeah, what's the matter? I've actually just been to Griffith, and uh, we were dri- driving to see my dad at Collie and we went past the post office at Darlington Point, checked out the height of the river, of course, but the post office at Darlington Point was where I got out of our vanguard and walked across to the post office and got the leading certificate results. And that was it. I was out of there. <laughs> okay, so, so, so even though you, you just wanted to escape it, it's, it's, it's basically, it's, it's, it's formed you, it's framed you. You know, you were, you were sure, saying, yeah, yeah. when we were talking on the radio the other day, you listed, you listed a whole bunch of, of, of uh, ethical underpinnings. Yes, really. when, when, when I got like to, You, you, yeah, you basically yeah, approach yeah. your entire life like you're a dour farmer looking at the clouds. You well, know? but I, I hadn't realised that until I got around to trouble and I went back to it. And I went back because I looked again, at the you, movie Wake and Fried. You do forget that on the... Um, if, there is any genetic predisposition to it. It probably comes from our grandfather and our mother's side who started the prune industry in Australia. He Did went, he? He went yeah, to California. He was, uh, <laughs> and talk about entrepreneurship. He, he, he went to California. Fruit. He yeah. found that you, there was the Dargan plum is, is what, where the prune comes from. Mm-hmm. And he learnt the dehydration techniques in California and came back and in Hanwood in, outside of Griffith started the prune industry. So... Not bad. That's pretty good. Were they jenning prunes? Sniggers from there on in. Can I tell stories? Was it a jenning prune? No, no, we, I don't think we ever named one. It was the Dargan plum. That the was Dargan. Dargan. Dad loved nothing better than take visitors to the dehydrator and give them a hot prune that just came out of the <laughs> Oh, I dream of a hot but, prune. But I, I always like to tell the story. This could be completely apocryphal, right. and Dare will probably tell me it is, but when he was at Yanko Ag, poor thing, Yanko Ag, he used to That's write home and ask for... Um, safety pins and we couldn't figure out why he needed so many safety pins and it was because the boys had to put their socks together with safety pins and we were selling them safety pins I mean, uh, apocryphal. Apocryphal? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> there you go. Kate, Such Kate a do, good story. <laughs> Kate, do farmers think of themselves as entrepreneurial? Do you think your father thought of himself as entrepreneurial? I don't 
They, no, he they thought find of himself. that way too pretentious. That would be way too pretentious. Like yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a farmer. But the fact is, yeah, they, you know, you, that's what you do. You, um, and especially in Griffith, where um, the, the Italian immigrants, the Calabrian immigrants all came there, and um, of course there's more famous stories now, but they were the entrepreneurial farmers, they, whereas the, the Anglo farmers were growing wheat because their father grew wheat and that's all they were ever going to grow. They cleared it and grew carrots on the broad acre. And you could see them coming in. Like we used but, to have a but, kind of barracks. They used to come down from the sugarcane fields and they'd stay in the barracks and pick the fruit. And you could just see them looking around and saying, let me add it. Mm, and, and I'm reminded in America, there's the one group that integrates immediately into American society. And I wonder if you can guess who it is. Haitians. They can't believe their luck. Right. You know. Right. It's, um, but you could see the Italians looking at this water, great soil, and um, they were off and running in no time at all. Mm. You mm. Could, uh, Do you have the same sort of sense of, you know, like, uh, I was struck by when Kate said this on the, on the radio the other day. She just kind of went, look, uh, I get up early and I, and I work hard all day. Um, you know, I don't let failure get me down. You've got another crop to get in the next day. You know, suddenly she turned into, like, head of the National Farmers. It was hilarious, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have the same sort of thing? Do you sort of, you know, because like what's, what's odd about you is that you've been a perfectly successful entrepreneur and now you've decided to do it all again. You know, you're off, off you go. Yeah, but I'm facing, you know, at 60, are you going to retire? I don't yeah. know. You know, what, what do you, what's yeah. that about? I don't know. So, and, and you know, just briefly, at, at this age, you, you really should challenge yourself a bit to do something else. Mm. And, and my latest business is really that. I just want to learn new things. And uh, it's, you know, a I like to say we're all one-trick ponies. So you just have to dress your trick up a little differently mm. from time to time. Mm. But, you but do you have you a sense do, of those yeah. sort of farmer-type things that rural New South Wales sort of, you know, you really should work harder. You, yeah, you, and, you and be die with your boots on, that sort, of, that on sort of attitude that, that you... Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you still say about what you're doing now, it's another roll of the dice, it's a high-wire act, you know, it's not as if it's easy. No, no, no it's, it, it, it's, it's the really challenge of... Mm. Again, trying to get the idea to, to take an idea and try to get it to sort of see if you can make you, it work. Dare, dare had a gap of about two years between Mambo and starting Deus, and I tell you, you didn't want to be near him. He was just <laughs> bored and cross, and you know, you just sort of mind was not why, occupied. Why do you think you're able, as as a businessman and entrepreneur, to do just the stuff you like? You know, the fact that you, you, you've and I think almost with Deus, it's kind of extraordinary. It's like you've taken motorbikes, a weird notion of customised motorbikes. You've built a clothing label around it. Then you think quite like those fixie bikes. I might throw a few of them in. And I still like a surfboard and might have a cafe. You know, it sort of, but, it but, all seems to be kind of basically, oh, I kind of feel like doing this. But, Most businesses are not that. They go, I've got widgets, I've been making so they fit the markets, you know. Like, you do seem to just kind of go, I feel like this. Well, the, 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 the point of what I'm trying to do now is to create a, a new idea out of a bunch of old ideas, but by cobbling them together, you end up, as I said, the sum of the parts create something that is more interesting than the things that came before it by their relationship with each other. And that's consciously what I'm trying to do with it. Mm. And, uh, and in that it creates culture. It's also timely, you know, because there's a, a whole group of men now who want to do, they want to learn things, they want to do things, they want to be participate in different activities. So it plugs into that. So there's a bunch of different... It wasn't... Um, <laughs> It wasn't just, gosh, or, you know, as, as haphazard. It was, it was a mm. conscious idea mm. of trying to combine those things. But they're all things so that I... So you think I, it's a conscious <laughs> analysis of the world you're looking at? But it's also not. things I love to do yeah. as well. You know, I could have added, I don't know, um, you know, hot rods. I don't care about hot rods. So yeah. that wouldn't have worked for me because I don't... But you, do, you have had naysayers. You know, you started off... Oh, yeah, when, when you start. And, and again, it, it's when you do these sort of things, 
if everybody gets it, it's always a bit of a worry because it's actually the fact that no one understands it means you've got to work harder. And when they do understand it, they'll go, oh, yeah, right, that's pretty good. I, I would like to say about my, my own, my books, is that my um, agent in New York always demands that I, that I write the book first and then get the advance. She's seen too many writers screw up, get the advance and not write the book. But I think partly that is because my, my books are really peculiar. And if you went to a publisher and said, oh, I think I'll write about Alzheimer's and bankers, they would say, well, you know, like, mm. I think that one's going to fly. We've got some market but, research but here, I was so, Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. But I was so lucky with this, this last book because um, it was like a full circle. I went back to Outback Press, which is a little entrepreneurial group way back when, um, Maurice Schwartz, and uh, to, to do it, we sort of came full circle. But it, it came about because, well, would you do a book of essays? And I said, mm, you know, essays, a bit beautiful. And I said, well, look, I've written all kinds of things because, um, you know, I've been out forced out into the world. I've been on the clipper ship. And um, why don't I try and put it together, piece it together, and see if I can tell a story of a time and sort of underneath it maybe my story. Um, and they, they took that punt. But I didn't know that it was going to work until I'd finished it. And it was a really like intense three months. Um, I only spent three months on it because spending any more time in my past, you know, we've some of, us past, some of us have pasts that we prefer not to go back into, mm. and mine's one of those. Mm. Um, but um, I do want to say that, um, to talk about Maury Schwartz, who gets a really bad rap because people say, oh, he's a developer, and he's sort of got this hobby of the monthly and black ink. And in fact, he's just like Dare. You sit with him half an hour, and he's got 20 ideas. Um, and running the monthly and black ink they're not small things, they're not hobbies. And it seems to me that it's like really sort of, it's the, the old left-wing pygmy thinking, you know, Maury Schwartz capitalists dismiss him, you know. Um, when in fact, Maury knows that you have to have money to fund a magazine like The Monthly and Black Ink. Um, as there, as, and we've, we've, uh, James and I have talked about this, is that, that there's an arrogance in the arts that if you think bankers are going to look after you, think again. You actually should be financially literate. You should get really interested in this stuff. It's not that hard. Yeah. Um, instead of thinking, you know, that you're, you're, you're special and somebody's really going to look after you, learn a business plan. And I suspect with the internet and it's sort of entrepreneurial that um, the way writers are, are, are going, we're, we're going to have to find out, you know, ads. Mm. We're going to have to bring in the ads. Uh, to go back to publishing, it was sort of drifting this way because... Um, in New York now, you even have to pay for your author photo. I mean, and uh, a guy, a friend of mine, Ben Ratliff, was putting out a book on Coltrane and he wanted to use one of my husband's photographs. Paris Strauss wouldn't pony up $200 for the photograph. I mean, it was a minimal amount. I mean, I, I gave it to him. And I, I used to start joking that what the publishers will do is they'll make us pay for everything and then they will go and put the book out there and if they make any money, they'll keep it. <laughs> you know, it's sort of yeah. that bad. But I think you've had this, you've dealt with publishers from time to time, and I, I have as well, and my, my sense is, you know, I'd perhaps you'd like to speak to this further, is that publishers are not entrepreneurial. That no, they, no, they haven't. That the, that the, whenever mm -hmm. I've dealt with publishers, it tends to be on the basis of, oh, yeah, look, we give you, if we give you about 10 grand and we sell about 1,000 and we uh, liquidate about two other more and we, you know, pulp those mm -hmm. other ones, we'll cover our costs. So, yeah, you yeah. can do it. Right, exactly. And yes. that's it. And that's yeah, the yeah, full yeah. extent there's of publishing huge, entrepreneurial. There's a, there's a huge goal. And if you go in with anything yeah. more and say, well, I just thought we might do this, oh, no, no way. No. 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 It's a very dull sort of closed sort of notion. 
With Mambo, we published a book, and we, and we ended up, after talking to various agents and publishers, we just published it ourselves. And, um, and we're just publishing one for Deus, and it's a beautiful book. It's 250 pages, and it really is fabulous. He's a great photographer and graphic artist. But this, this, this beautiful paradigm now is that, because, and Kathy, uh, Kate introduced me to a, a very delightful agent from New York, and he, you know, and he talked it up, and he wanted to represent the book. But in the end, it was the original four-fifths of five-eighths of fuck-all deals where you just got nothing at the end of it. And, and you're supposed to be pleased with it. And now we can... I had the money to pay the publisher, the, the printer in, in Singapore, so we've got the book, we've got the culture to support it, we've got the, the platform of our website to sell it, and we'll probably sell 3,000 of the books in a week and so, make lots of money that so will allow us to make... $80 a copy instead yeah, of getting and, 20 and, from... Whereas the other one that he was suggesting was we might get some money and, and then you get these indecipherable uh, um, statements. Well, but to go back well, to the, the book itself, though. There's many musicians yeah. who now do this, who say, look, yeah. this is, it's a waste Music of time exactly being a record same. company. I can make the CD for 10 grand. I can walk around to my gigs. If I sell 10 of them every night, I get the whole, that's $300. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the year, I've actually sold 5,000 of them. I got all the money. You yeah, know? But, but the thing is, if you go back to that book, you're surrounded by a group of really talented people. Carby is a genius. The, the, you are there. With all the, you know, you've mm. surrounded yourself with people who can put together this extraordinary thing. Um, it's not like you just slap together a book there, and it's really, it really is. And this marvelous. is what you're saying about the writers. And this is what I'm saying to... about the editors and the producers. Mm. You can't. Uh, as some, mm. A friend of mine said yesterday, you've got, a, you're on the front line. You think you think you need someone on the hill. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of um, a lot of people are assuming that you can just, you know, because there are no barriers to entry any longer, that you can make a movie, you can do anything, because you can throw it out there on the web. But that just but, means, doesn't yeah. it, that the, the publishing entrepreneurial model, of which there's been mm. none, yeah. there can now be one. What about the well, Dave Eggers, McSweeney sort of approach, where well, they, well, they have right, their own yeah, little yeah, house, yeah, well, they have the magazine, it's all a 50-50 yeah, 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 yeah. split. Yeah. You know, surely there's got to be people around there. They're 30, they're bored in, in random house, mm. leave. Well, link up with young writers and go do something well, exciting. Well, absolutely, you know? and the Andrew Wiley deal is really... So anyone it's, from Random House here, I think yeah. you're fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Random House. <laughs> that was just a generic kind of publishing. Yeah, well, it is. <laughs> but but, in, but the um, Andrew Wiley thing is really game-changing. What hmm. he's done is extraordinary. And that's not and, a bad thing, right? It, no, it's not a bad thing at all. It, 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 one wonders if he'll do right by his authors if he's also publishing them. And if he's only distributing through Amazon, well, he's not at the airport, is he? Um, mm. That kind of thing. But he probably well, he doesn't care. he sort of care. is at the airport now, he's in the Kindle and the iPad, isn't he? Well, he is, yeah. You know? I mean, sure, absolutely. So... Because what he's saying is the future is e-books, and he's totally and utterly right. Three, mm. In three years' time, there won't be physical books. That's my opinion, anyway. Mm. Um, but it, it's, it's, I still think people need editors, and they need good producers, mm. or they need somebody somewhere to, to say, look, here, so you know, look at this. It's not that the writer has to become more entrepreneurial, but you mm-hmm. need different kind of entrepreneurs thinking well outside of the mahogany walls of publishing, you know, those yeah, traditional... Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, it still yeah, seems, no, no, it yeah, still yeah, seems yeah, to me yeah, today yeah. that half yeah. the time publishers have this yeah. sort of notion that they're in a kind of walnut sort of room and they've got a lovely, they've got an ottoman and a couch and, oh, Aldous Huxley look, just I've had, in, I've had you know? some wonderful editors <laughs> and I've, publishers, but, you know, what's happening to publishers is that they deserve everything that's heaped on them, frankly. I mean, it, they have a appalling business model. I, want, I just want to tell one story. I mean, we've all, writers have all got painful stories about our books, but um, Moral Hazard came out in the States. And uh, if you can't get sold through Barnes & Noble, you're dead in the water, right? Barnes & Noble happens to be run by 
owned by Riggio, who's a Catholic, and there is one literary gatekeeper for books like mine, for books like Moral Hazard, literary fiction, in the whole of the state. She's also Catholic. Moral Hazard has euthanasia in it. She wouldn't stop it. That was the end of that. Now, that, that is censorship. So I said to the HarperCollins South, okay, I'm going to write an op-ed piece in the Times. They went absolutely white because they, want, they, they need Barnes & Noble. So anyway, got great reviews. They went back to this gal and said, look, great reviews. We'll do the co whole co-op thing. And she said, but it's not selling. And I said, you're not stocking it. And that was the end of Moral Hazard, basically. I mean, it went through the independent stores. Um, so now, another huge banking crisis. We go to HarperCollins and say, would you reprint this book? Six months of dicking around, they finally come back and say, look, it's a fabulous book. It's a really fabulous book, but it's an old book. And meanwhile, people are saying, we really need novels that are examining the, you know, what bankers yep. are like, etc., etc." et you could, you could get upset about it, but if you've lived with publishers long enough, you're sort of like, oh, okay, next. It's sort of, but it's true. They're often very, very slow to react, and, and you know the technology is there to publish books quickly. There's there's the whole ebook kind of thing, and they're still you know often in a mindset of we'll need the manuscript by March. We're thinking December, maybe April of the following well, year. Yeah, no, you nobody know, can like, well, believe that Trouble came out in. We, look, I did the quarterly essay for them. I wrote it in five weeks, and we turned it around in four days. Mm. And uh, with, uh, with trouble, it was you know, three months and turned it around in a month. Yeah. Usually, in, you know, it's two years. Yeah. I mean, we, you, you, way down by yeah. the time they have their lunches and they go to the Frankfurt Book Fair and da-da-da, you know, like endless. There are of, a lot of lunches. Th there are a lot of book fairs too, you know. Well, but, our, our book is on, the, it's on a boat now coming from Singapore and the minute we've got it, we can put it on the internet and we, we'll, by the end of the week... And when did you deliver it to Singapore? Um, it's taken about a month to print. I mean, the, the, so the work was done the, on the book. A month ago. Mm, you send the files Printed over, but, but that's yeah. the point. It's like the turnaround. Yeah. I mean, the book's been taken you know, yeah. a couple of years to collect all the photos, but the point is the, mm. the thing turns around. But I was just going to say, you know, from our old music days, you know, when Phantom Records, where that was well before the internet, but we made our own records. We, people had tapes, and you took them up to festival, and they made the acetate, and then you went to the printer, and he printed the cover and you sold your record, yeah. and we didn't have to sign up with anybody. And, and there, was a, there was a distribution there through all the independent record stores. Yeah. And that was fun. And the point about that, it was fun. Like, you, there was no pressure. There was no overhead that was going to kill you. You just sort of did it because it was fun. And that, that became a tangible marketing tool, is the fact that people were, geez, those guys are having a really good time. Mm. You know, do you, do like you see the new technology, do you see the internet basically as being... Uh, meaning there is no barrier. If, if someone is entrepreneurial, they have an idea, they've made their organic muffins, there's no reason why... Yeah, that's right. It, it, exactly. If you can... Uh, the, the form of distribution has just changed completely. And it, all of the publishers, the record companies, they were the distributors in the end. Mm -hmm. And they had the means of distribution. They've lost that now, so it's, a, it's another thing. But still, what's interesting about it is you've still got to have a good idea, and good ideas still work. Good stories still work. Good music still works. Yeah. And, um, you know... That, that, that part hasn't changed, which is sort of encouraging. And the other part is that there's so much crap on the internet, how do you know what's good? I mean, the cream is not rising to the top, so mm. it's... You don't it's think? Just big, no, I, I don't think so. I think it's... Look, don't basically, find the good look, you've got this little you know, bit. You've got Amazon and eBay over here, very nice. I do all my shopping online. And the other three quarters of it, half of it's porn, and the other half, it's bloggers commenting on old media. What are they going to do when they use it? When we've all lost our jobs, which we are rapidly, New York... I, you couldn't do what I did, freelance writers getting fired left, right and centre, going back to their mm. home states. It's horrible. Mm. Um, 
so old media eventually is, is going to be chewed up, and so what are they, what are they going to blog about? Anyway, that's just a, well, just a thought. Yeah. I've been trying to get Dare to put my books on his platform, but... Really, you can't sell moral hazard through Deus, you don't think? It won't, <laughs> won't the biker community is not interested in Stanley and Sophie? What, what are you saying? Well, we get the intellectual biker in there, but I don't know. Right. See, uh... <laughs> you got Zed and the Art of the motor- Motorcycle Maintenance on the shelves? We would, but purely as a reference point. That's <laughs> Do you think that in Australia, I mean, whenever I, you know, the other starting point for sort of thinking about this tonight was that entrepreneur in Australia is like a dirty word. You know, I just think it means a Western Australian, a Panama hat, or a Queenslander with white shoes. You know, like it doesn't doesn't have that sort of like, like perhaps in America, more that sort of like, yeah, he's an entrepreneur, venture capitalist. It's a god. You're a god. If you're, if it's the thing that I've noticed is that. Australians don't mind entrepreneurs. They think it's pretty good, but they hate it when they get successful. Or they they think that <laughs> they think that. That doesn't um, mean they don't like them. No, but but also it's that it's again it's the the whole conundrum of ideas. Like the average person doesn't have an idea, but they see your idea and go, oh, I could have had that idea. And then they, as it gets better, they go, well, I could have had that idea. That was me. I, he's got my idea. Yeah. But the point is they never, they didn't see the idea in the first place. I've got a great idea for a T-shirt too, by the way. Oh, good. After, <laughs> <Go yeah. on. laughs> you know, it just occurred to me um, that back in the, in the 60s, when we wanted to do something, we did it. I have a friend here tonight that we lived in a house on Greypoint Road. And it's, you know, you, you wanted to put out, a, you know, we had a Ronio machine, yeah. but you wanted to put out a newspaper. You, di- you didn't wait for a grant, for heaven's sakes. And I just... Um, yeah, I, I grew up in the... Get started on grants. Uh, yeah. This is the problem. Okay, give money to schools. Terrific. But don't give money to a starving artist. Put starving artists on clipper ship. Get out into the world. Make money yeah. some other way. What happens with grants, unfortunately, and I've seen it over the years, it's, it's people equate their talent with how much grant money they get. And really, it's just whether they're good at applying for grants or who's at the other end and mm. handing the grants out. Um, but the grants and, and undermine the artistic entrepreneurship. I think, that, I think it absolutely will drive you on to do yeah, better yeah. Work. And I think, you know, if you look at... I mean, everywhere I go, people just say, Australian movies suck. Well, look at the money they've heaped into Australian mm. movies. Every now and again, a good one gets thrown up. But given the amount of money that's put into it, Look, just, just tell them to go off and make their movies somehow. Mm. We live in a global world. You can get financing all over the place. But go out and grub up the money yourself. Sorry, I'm really the, getting really harsh about this one. But, it's, but it's a, a, a hmm. good friend of mine is Mark Lewis, who made the, original, who made, um, the Cane Toads movie. And he, I have such respect for him because he, he has a very quirky style. I mean, he defined a style of documentary making. And he went, well, you know, I can sit around here and moan about it or, you know, a discovery will, the Discovery Channel will pay you X amount of money for a finished thing, so I'll make it for 20% less than that and so I'll make some money out of it. And he travels the world making documentaries and, and lives in Malambimbi and, you know, flies off to be on an aircraft carrier in the Gulf to, you know, to make a documentary. And he, he is very successful at it and he's never... I don't think he's ever got a scent of... Um, well, exactly. he made Cain Toads in exactly, case. The, yeah. in exactly the way, you know, I think a lot of young filmmakers should. He was working as a sound guy, yeah. you know, borrowed the gear, borrowed, got, got his mates to do a yeah. bit. Come on, we'll go up to Queensland two days, yeah. you know, I just need a shot of the, the toad on the road. But you know they weren't... The golf club, let's hit oh, the... Oh, you know the toad, they the toad on the road. This is <laughs> horrifying. You told me the other day that they weren't... They were actually potatoes on the road when the, when the combi's going down the thing because he didn't want to kill real Cain Toads. Sorry to break it down. Sorry. <laughs> it's like the Civil War, the Spanish Civil War photograph that they've recently discovered maybe was posed. But yeah, um, yeah. I just want actually to, to speak to the, mm. the character trait. Um, 
the only time I've, I've worked at magazines, the only time I've truly been in harness was when I was, worked at the investment banks. And after I left, I said to one of my friends there that I worked with, I said, you know, I think I did a really good job of fitting in. And she couldn't stop laughing. I mean, fell off a chair laughing. She said, Kate, you stuck out like a sore thumb. <laughs> you know, whatever I did and tried. I, I mean, not clearly wasn't corporate environments, but I thought I'd done a great job, and apparently I'd just done an appalling job. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. And that's just that, you know, neither dare or I, we want to work for ourselves. I mean, we just, um, again, maybe, does that come back to the farmer thing, or it just comes yeah. back to that we're stubborn yeah. and ornery, and we don't like anybody else telling us what to do. Very people to get on yeah, with, Exactly, really. very not nice people at all. <laughs> um, I mean, I think we're happy to open up to uh, any questions or comments. You might like to pick up on anything that anyone's been saying. There's a couple of mics in the, uh, the middle there. You can just rise out of your chair and declaim. Yes, here's one. Thank you so much. Thanks for the conversation so far. And so we're entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial born, or can we teach entrepreneurism? Mm. What do you reckon, Dear? Born or can you teach? Uh, Should there be entrepreneur 101? I'm, I'm a big fan of the whole notion of um, personality types. And there are just certain sorts of personalities that are... And um, it was a real, the blinds dropping from, from my eyes when I sort of realised that I'm hopeless at so many things, but I'm quite good at a big picture idea. But I badly need other people to come and help me do those sort of things. So yeah, I, I think it's hard to, you know, someone who's really good at specifics and doing, you know, fine detailed things is probably never going to be a big picture person. But the big picture person needs the fine detail person, the fine detail person needs. So the guys that have helped me over the years have just been... You know, I needed them, they needed me. So it was a very symbiotic relationship. Um, but you can teach, you can certainly help people understand the ideas of it, and, but it's, it is kind of hard to, if you're never going to be an entrepreneur, you're never going to be an entrepreneur kind of thing. I think, I, I know, I, I think, yeah, you're born, actually. Um, Elizabeth Hardwick said of writers, you cannot teach writing. You can teach people to love reading, but you can't teach writing. It's a talent. You're born with it. Sorry. This goes against the writing school mm. um, <laughs> passion at the moment. Um, but I, I just, uh, Dare and I really um, both in um, agreement on MBAs. Um, we actually found out somewhere there were two professors of entrepreneurship somewhere. I have a long standing <laughs> thing about MBAs and just because they, they have this sanctimonious notion that because they know, they've studied it, they know more than you do. And you go, oh, okay. But the, um, and I recently read an article about a guy who'd sold his business and he decided to do an MBA course and he waited for the, you know, the moment where he went, damn, it was worth doing it. And he got to the end and went, there was really not a great deal in there. Mm. But, so that's probably a good example of you know, MBAs, the, the whole idea of an MBA is trying to teach can you, can somebody Can you raise an entrepreneur? Can you make it, make your... your your child, your kid, sort of, yeah, I can is do Harry, ideas. Is Harry I can here? Have. Harry no, here? I, we, we, we've got a test case. Is, is yeah, Harry, that's right. <laughs> Harry probably got bored and left. I was going to thank Harry that's for his. Right. He actually put together a poster in many is, colours with a great, no. with a great, he said, eight years old, with, a, with terrific typefaces. Never too early to teach a child typefaces. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Well, again, it just comes down to the, you know, you, there's classic examples of families where, you know, six kids and one of them, may, you know, yeah. one of them took over the family business, business yeah. and the other ones pissed it all away. But, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think it, it just helps if you want to do it, you know. Yeah. 
And, and again, in my case, I don't know why I do it. I, I have no idea. Yeah. It was not like a conscious thing or anything. It was just I was enthusiastic about it, and I just had to figure it out. So. Mm. Well, um, just head to a mic if you've things, got a question, so, and I'll pick one up. One of the things, Dare said he did that Myers-Briggs test, and I said, well, the, my big revelation actually was in AA, where I had to realise my limitations. That was, you know, I think for people to realise their limitations is huge. Mm. And again, I think he was saying that, is that who do you need to help you? Um, and, um, you know, I'm a writer in search of a really good editor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. A few comments and then a question mm -hmm. for the two of you to address. Uh, I agree, you know, MBAs, they create administrators, they don't create entrepreneurs. So we talked about enterprise, which uh, Des, you know, your model, you uh, mentioned it is a heady mix of risk-taking and passion. And then in between there was a comment that there is another model where there is, you take some risk, but at the same time, you have a calculated mechanism. You have your market survey to identify gaps, and then you try to fill those gaps with something risky which will succeed, which I think is what the professors of entrepreneurship are teaching at the school, at the colleges. You didn't do that. So, yeah, you did mention that. But my question is here. There's one more. I come from a biotechnology background. For me, enterprise is something that apart from taking risk and making a change, also is likely to change something in somebody's life or in the world or change the way we live. So the question for artists, creative, writers and all is, what component of your enterprise is there where you take a high level of risk, where you don't do the same thing that everybody else is doing, but that will change the way we think, we behave, we read, we study or we understand the world? Hmm. Okay, what do you reckon? When you write something, are you thinking about its effect? Are you thinking about... The change in, in your readers? No, I'm just trying to think if I can do this thing the best, write a book that's good. Mm. Um, no, not at all. I mean, I, I, in my younger days as a feminist, I was, you know, thought, well, got to change the world. Um, actually, I, I was challenged a bit. Um, a friend, Julie McCrossan, visit me, visited me in New York, and she is also um, in AA, and publicly so, I can say that. But I was going to the National Library and I had to give a speech and she said, you know, well, she sort of said, what do you do with this AA stuff, Kate? And of course I actually don't talk publicly about it, hadn't up until then. And I stood up in the National Library in front of 300 people and talked about my friend Ray Matthew, who was a great writer, but also in AA. So every now and again, you know, one does get the courage to stand up and be counted. Um, I think that means a lot. Can I just go back to one point? Actually, Dare doesn't do focus groups or mm. that no. part of it. Um, but just, just quickly, I, just, um, I was in Griffith and I was interviewed um, by a young girl at the local the Griffith Area News and she did a page interview and it was absolutely fantastic. And she's, I said, well, how long have you been in Griffith? And she said, six months, I've just got out of journalism school. And I said, well, what did you think of journalism school? She said, I wish I hadn't done it. Didn't learn a thing. Mm. I'm learning now on the job. So anyway. So in response to your, your question and your statement that, look, I don't know if what I'm doing is right and I don't try to stand here and say You've, you should all listen to me and do what I do. Uh, and whereas, and I guess that's the point of the MBA courses is it's try to put a structure to something and make, make it sort of work. Um, but in my case, you know, I don't do, because I only stick to things that I know about and I do try to do things that don't exist, you know, to, to create something that doesn't exist. 
But to me, it's probably more just intuitive because I, I'm not interested in doing things that other people have done. So uh, I will follow that path. So hopefully I will come up with something that is interesting and challenging and people come and go, wow, I've never seen that before. This is terrific. I've learned something from so it. So in, in that, you want to affect the change in an individual or in a... Well, well, I hope so. It's not an altruistic thing. It's no. just, it's just that's, what, that's what entertains me, is mm. trying to see if you can make it work. And, and the fact is, you know, most, businesses are, most business models are what's working, we'll do that too, and we'll try to do it cheaper and mm. get into the market. Whereas my, what interests me is going, this sort of doesn't exist. Can I get it up and make it work? And the thing that will make it work is that people will come to it and go, man, this is fresh, it's interesting, it's different. And I, you know, I really want to participate mm. in it. But if, if you thought motorbikes would be worse for Sydney, you wouldn't do it. Oh, you know, somebody could morally say, you know, it's an internal combustion engine. But you know, I don't yeah, know. but I mean, but if if if, 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 we, if we were in a situation where where the farting dog T-shirt was going to destroy society, yeah, that's you right. Know, you wouldn't yeah, do no, it. If, if you thought that motorbikes were going to be a, a shocking option for Sydney transport, and this was a really stupid idea, and people shouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it just because you like them and there's a market. Right? Yeah, and, and they were morally repugnant. Yeah. The, uh, no, I, probably, I would yeah. like to think I wouldn't, yeah. so hopefully so far. Though there were some people who did think Mambo was morally repugnant, yeah. but um, well, that was bloody rich. Jesus, he was, he was can. The, how can that be repugnant? You know? <laughs> yes, good sir. Hi. Um, thank you for the discussion so far. Very interesting. Um, there are many points of similarity in uh, my background, my family, my wife grew up in a farm at Griffith, uh, my brother and sister are both musicians, uh, I'm a designer. Um, What's my a family name? Sydney people who've moved to the country. Uh, I've talked to many other people in creative areas who um, uh, came up, grew up in, in the country and moved to town and I, I sort of formulated a kind of vague notion that there's something a little bit different when you come from the country uh, and you come to the city and, and immerse yourself in this sort of world. Um, and uh, my kids have grown up in the city. There's a sort of, uh, almost a kind of, um, an expectation that things, these things are available, they're around you all the time when you grow up in the city environment. I think when you come to the country, there's a, there's a slight sort of separation from that, almost a sort of slight feeling of gratitude that these things are available to you. And I've often thought that that's something that kind of drives people uh, in creative areas and probably other areas who come from a country background. I've just wondered what your thought might be on that. Well, I, th I think it is this idea of delayed gratification. I have an eight-year-old son somewhere, and I worry terribly because he gets to do all the things that I do, and so ultimately he won't be that impressed by any of them, whereas <laughs> my background was, you know, I was driving the tractor. I just wanted anything but that. And I would go to any lengths to, you know, to go and discover it. And you know, I was driven. There was a hunger there that's, that, that comes from that. And it, there's, it's an interesting psychological thing now. Of the, the kids get everything. You know, so what are they going to? What are they going to crave? What are they going to look forward to? It is different in the country now, though. I mean, we're talking 1950s Australia. I mean, you know, it took all day to get to Sydney. They got um, McDonald's once a now. year, right? But the, the people that I know in Griffith, um, um, they're in their 40s with kids. They travel all the time. I mean, they're, they're, we, we didn't do any things that they did. I mean, they're, they're, I look at kids in New York and say, God, they're lucky. Look what they have all around them. I mean, wouldn't it be incredible to grow up with that? Uh, but in fact, the people I know in Griffith, they're not exactly um, 
deprived of culture or anything. I mean, mm. they're, they're out and about all the time. The um, urban life has spread out. Yeah, the yeah. I mean, they're, they're to the coast, to their, their to yeah. literary festivals, they're off to Italy, they visit me in New York. They are continually on the move, and the kids ditto, I mean, during their high school years. So mm. it's, not, it's not like it was mm. for us at all. We're, we're just in books and a dream. Yep. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah, for me, like, I, I can very much relate to uh, what Dare was saying about sort of having nothing um, when, when you're growing up. Before, like, I, when I was at school, I probably wasn't the brightest kid, and it's only been after I left school that I actually started to find my feet and, you know, experience more. Um, the question that I want to ask to both of you, and I want to say to um, Kate as well, I think it humanises you a little bit more that you said that you went to AA, um, because not only are you a sort of entrepreneur, but you're also a human as well. And I think entrepreneurs have to go through the humanistic uh, side of running a business too. Um, I want to know about like the naysayers. Um, I love hearing stories from entrepreneurs who speak about like the people who said that they couldn't do things, um, particularly when you're trying to create ideas. Like you, you're saying you've got a blank page and you have to create sort of art on your, on your, um, on your products. Can you tell us a bit about some of your naysayers? Well, the, the great thing about for naysayers now is blogs. So once you kind of heard rumours what people were saying, now you can read the bloody thing. This they sucks. Books. And, the, and they, you, they're called the trolls and they come out, you know, and, and especially for us because we're in motorbikes and the bicycles and all that sort of stuff. So there's these whole cultures there that hate you because you're actually doing it and, and, they, and they've got forums to write it all in if you, if, and you just don't want to read it. Because I mean, the blogs are terrible, but the comments underneath them, I had to tell they're, they're them. Anonymous, but they're always anonymous. Stuff, you know. but, what about the, but what about the sort of naysayer when you're walking around and you're saying, you know, look, we, we've got this record store and I think we could, we could do more with T-shirts and, you know, or the naysayer when you say, you know, they have these custom motorbikes in Japan, I think I might bring them down, you know, the sort of people that go... You out of your brain? But in yeah. a way, I quite like the naysayers because that becomes the wall that you've got to go and challenge and break down. So yeah. it's, but it's, it's sort of, um, yeah, it, it can be sort of hurtful and in some ways it can be quite um, encouraging as well to prove them wrong. Mm. Mm. What, about the, what about the rejection? What we, when, when you said, if you, you said if you had to go to your publisher and say, uh, you know, give me an advance for Alzheimer's and banking book mm -hmm. that they mightn't have seen the genius that might be there. Uh, what... What do you do with rejection, with the naysayer for the idea? I have an agent in New York who, who tells me everything. I wish she sometimes wouldn't tell me everything. And I kept all the, the, the rejection letters from Moral Hazard because they were absolutely brilliant. You know, one, one editor wrote right across it, banking, boring. You know, and another woman wrote a three-page letter saying, this is the book I wanted to read. And if you could see these letters from publishers, you think, God. And finally, somebody took it. Um, with Snake, I had an, an editor took it. But he didn't want to have the chapter headings, which are actually quite important in the book, so a big fight over chapter headings. Um, I think my naysayers are not so much the um, publishers, I mean publishers are publishers, uh, uh, but my peer group actually. Uh, the crusty old sisterhood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think, in, think in, in, in any walk of life, the people who do it will tell stories of enormous rejection, enormous, you know, negativity, and you, just, you go through it. And it's like you were saying about young writers. If, if, you, if you're not going to get used to failure, you're not going to get used to people telling you you're crap, then get it, out of the... You're not, you're not even starting get out of, in the Get game. out of the you're kitchen if you, can't, if you can't do it. Ted Salteroff, actually, I got that quote from him, and he mm. says, um, 
because young people will then say, oh, I know about rejection, I can handle failure. And he says, you can handle failure as much as if you can handle coal when you go to Alaska for the first time. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's not quite the same thing when you come up against it at all. Yeah, and you come mm. up against it over and over again. Mm. Um, sorry, can I just yeah, say sorry, that? Yeah, I think there is a, we have a partner who, um, a partner in my current business, Carby Tuckwell, is, has come out as a graphic artist and designer. He's always worked in advertising. And he's found now that he works for the company, you know, he, 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 the company that he owns, and he finds it really difficult because, as in advertising, he could do all these marvellous things, and if they didn't work, he could blame about a hundred people mm. for why they didn't work. <laughs> but now it's like, I did this, we offered it for sale, no one bought it, so right. get used to it. It didn't work, and he yeah. has to. It's really kind of um, interesting for him yeah. because he can't. Yeah. Uh, he has to accept that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, this uh, this is for Kate um, from a from a crusty old sister. <laughs> um, when you first started on Wall Street. Uh, you, you wrote the most amazingly funny things. It was like you, you'd landed on a, a, this alien planet and you wrote the, your observations of it were incredibly funny. It was, a, it was clearly a, a weird, weird place. Mm. remains a weird place. However, the GFC happened. You've observed it. You've written, a, you've written about finance ever since then in a, a really good way. How do you see Wall Street now? Is it is it same same business as ever? Um, are you will you go back to it or will you stick with it? Do do those things? I mean, what is Wall Street now to you since since you landed on that alien planet and got off again? It was it was like somebody had sent me off to boarding school <laughs> at the time, like <laughs> stitch my name in the back of my my suit. I, I'm about the last person you'd ever think would be in a corporation, and I remember. Um, having a dinner with my agent one day, and a woman was there who'd just put him, her husband into Mary Manning Walsh, which is a nursing home uh, with Alzheimer's. And so she was told that my husband had Alzheimer's and had died. And she said, aren't you angry? Aren't you angry? And I, and I said, well, Gloria, was I angry? And she said, no, you were, you were never angry. You were, you were always funny and you were sometimes sad. And it was... Um, and Gloria would call me every two days just to sort of get, get the, the news from Wall Street because most of my friends had, had, nothing, had, had nothing to do with it. And it was um, amusing in, in some ways. It was terribly hard to work there. I mean, you know, humiliating. Management by fear, day in, day out. Um, not much fun. Um, now, uh, I mean, I, do, I, I still have... Um, I don't know if any of you read Lucy Kellaway... Um, she actually agrees with me. If we had a group of writers and a group of bankers, who would we hang out with? We'd hang out with the bankers. They're actually more interesting. They get out <laughs> in the world and they know stuff. Um, the problem at the moment with what's happened in the last years um, is that uh, the bankers I know who've been bankers for 30, 40 years, they're ashamed to be bankers. Um, it's just horrible. Uh, and um, it, 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 it's rather wonderful the way Paul Volcker has... Um, come back in his, what, isn't he, 90s? And um, somebody was asking me for the definition of radical, and I said, Paul Volcker try putting purity and banking reform in the one sentence. That's radical. <laughs> so he's the most radical man in America. Are you going to go um, back to it? I, 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 look, I'm, I'm banned from six investment, investment banks. You know, you don't tell the secrets of the tribe. You can't go back to it. Yeah. But do I remain really, really interested in it? Absolutely, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, in finance and, and banking more than anything else. It's like, you know, Terrier, you know, I've got my 
pant, that pant leg in my mouth and I'm not letting go. And I find it endlessly interesting and I don't understand why other people don't find it endlessly interesting because these guys are Shakespearean. They have huge amounts of money and power and the stuff they get up to is absolutely bloody amazing. And you, you should know about this. When I went to work on Wall Street, I asked um, two people, uh, which um, I think my friend just would, would have known these people. I said, what should I read? And they said, don't get the Wall Street Journal, get the FT, start reading it every day, and you won't understand a word. It'll be like a foreign language. Just keep reading and reading, and one day it'll start to make sense, and one day it did. So that's my only advice, is get the FT, subscribe to it, start reading, and you you will learn extraordinary things. Mm. Yes. (coughs) Um, My question is about competitiveness and how important it is for an entrepreneur to have a competitive streak. And the second part of my question, I suppose, is as we enter a free market and the long tail and this new technology, is it still going to be important to want to win? Is there still that need to sort of rise to the, to the top and also, you know, how does it differ from perhaps maybe before the market was so available? Um. Competitiveness is obviously, you know, it's a human trait and it's, it's part of all of us. Uh, I think you have to be careful that the competitiveness doesn't over, overawe the whole thing and, and become uh, the whole point of it. I think, and there are definitely people who do that, you know, the, the, all they care about is the competition. Um, whereas I, I, I probably am competitive, but I'd like to think that there's more important things than just the competition. You know, it's, it's, it's a motivation and, um, you know, th- to see what else is there and see what you can do. But I think it shouldn't be the main act in what you do. And, but, but I think it will always be there. And, and I, I think that's what's sort of interesting now is that all of the, you know, the whole, all the arguments about Gen Y and what, what they've got and what they've learnt and um, are they going to be different. And the guys that I work with, have, they... They've still got all. They're, they're, they're the same as what I was at that age. They've they've got different things at their fingertips and different technology, but the overarching thing that they have is the same. Are the same. They they want to do things. They some are competitive. Some are you know they they they're still doing the same things. And I think that all of those things will keep going one way or the other. The the technology will be different though. And markets are fine, so long as they're sensibly regulated. And markets, competition, hey, bring it on. It's like you know, the, the, the kindergartens where everybody gets, a, gets the trophy because we're all equal. We're, we're not, actually. And the, demo, the democratisation of talent has is, 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 uh, been a terrible thing because we're not all equally talented. We have to find out what our talent is. I've stopped going to my little boy's awards because he, they just give, everyone's got to get their turn to get an award. And I go, come on, did he do something good? Or, no, he it's sat just, it's very just, well. He, yeah, that's <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not good. And it's like, basically, it was his turn to get an award. So, yeah. um, so. I mean, I, in, in media, it's incredibly competitive, and you, and you really do have to have a. a a strong competitive. You don't streak. like going on holidays, do you? I never do. Usually, somebody there when you get do. back. Tell me who you're putting in. But yeah, the people that get started, you've got to have a. Competitive do you get streak. rated though? You know, wherever, wherever you go these yes. days, you have to. Tell, you've got a thing on your seat, you know, telling you oh, yes. yeah, so what you thought of this feedback. event. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you sort of get rated Not that way? Personal, but there's ratings yeah. that you know we they have do. the radio ratings, yeah. so, you know that uh, 
The, the ABC no, no, no. regards ratings in that kind of like it's it's like if if we get them, that's very good, and we all go whippy whippy. If we if that doesn't work, then it was it's it doesn't really matter. It's very odd. Like when, what's funny is on, on ratings day in, in 702, we get, it's exactly the same reaction. The ratings come round and somebody walks around with a bottle of Calara champagne at about 11. <laughs> well, it wasn't too bad. It only went down about half a point. In commercial media, in commercial media, they kill you if the ratings drop in a 15-minute spot. They, 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 that, that, that's a day's problem. That's, you are hauled into offices and killed because the ratings slumped for As you for should be, minutes. yeah, right. I've been told, mm. it, I was on a live television show and, was, and it was, they were crossing to me immediately. I was a judge on this horrible singing show. And, and they were crossing to me and as I'm about to speak in my ear, the producer starts saying, uh, we're coming up to the 8 o'clock uh, turnover, so can you keep it going for about a minute or so? Can you create sort of some sort of air retention so they stay with us and we can, we can keep the ad break going? And what he wanted me to do was keep the, keep the viewers over 8 o'clock so they didn't switch over and so they kept the rating marker. And this is going in my ear while I'm trying to talk. That's, he didn't care what I was going to say, he just needed me to keep going. Just keep going and create some sort of air attention. So competitiveness in media, nightmare. Yes. Yeah, there, there's also this thing called book scan. I suppose it's here. Mm. You know, you can't, agents can't fudge how many copies you mm. sold. They, the, the, the publisher just immediately looks up and they know how many books you sold the last time. And the other unfortunate thing in publishing is that your, your, your publisher will take you on for one book and that's it. No matter how well that book does, it's one book. They don't nurture a writer, keep the writer on. Unless, of course, you're, you know, the vampire lady. Mm. Keep you. Yeah. It's definitely mine. Mm. Yeah. Yes? Thanks for that. Um, just a quick idea for you before the question. I think Kate would write a wonderful book and dare you'd be able to use it, you know, how to serve as a two-stroke engine. It'd be very useful for days. <laughs> But just a question, as two young kids growing up on the Hay Plain, at some stage you obviously decided to go your different ways in your thought processes. Along that journey of life, did you ever come across a point where you could go a different angle again and finish up in a completely different place to where you are now? Did you ever think that through along um, your way? Yeah, obviously, yeah. You, 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 do, um, you do think that, you know, could have got my girlfriend pregnant at school or something and I'd still be there driving the tractor, if, probably if that happened. Um, uh, well, do you mean a bit later? Do you mean sort yeah, of... Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're... Like at 40, 40, 40 plus. Was, was, there path, a point, was there a point where you thought, maybe I'll, I'll probably just change tack here and, you know, you know yeah, but stop doing the T-shirts? Yeah, there's, there's always the thing, question of fate and things could have turned out differently, but... Mm. But they didn't. So Dare can't stop himself. Yeah, no. It, yeah, he's on, just, on his holidays, he's building a business in Bali. That's it's, what he's doing. You know, ask, he him about, ask him about the business in Bali. It's, yeah. it's like a whole ideas lab. But um, it's uh, yeah. Um, go on. Oh, um, I love Bali. I love Indonesia, and and Bali is a nice place to go. And so we're, we're building a, um, a. I think the best. Think way to describe it is a hipsters industrial complex there where we're making motorbikes and surfboards and but plugging into this kind of raw enthusiasm of, of Indonesians and the way they do things so I wanted him to bring photographs of them actually putting this place together mm. um, I, I actually at one point thought I actually inherited my mother's dreams of being a writer and I thought you know maybe I don't have to be a writer Hmm. What shall I do? And of course, I thought, well, I'll be a horticulturalist, and everybody else in our family is horticulturalist. <laughs> and it wasn't very original. I thought, well, maybe before I sign up for the three-year horticultural course out at the New York Botanic Gardens, um, I should audit a few classes. I have never been so bored in all my life, you know. <laughs> and I realised, you know, I couldn't sit through year, three years of it. So uh, back to writing, yeah. you know, like it or not. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much. Thank Jennings you. Minor, Jennings Major, which is Jennings Major, Jennings Minor. Thanks so much for... Uh, for <laughs> Elder and younger. <laughs> for coming along. Would you thank Kate Jennings? <laughs> Brother Dare. And thank you very much for, uh, for coming along tonight. Thank you, James. Thank, thank you, James. James. <laughs>